Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Hey, Chris. Hey, Amos. Are you recording now? I'm recording now. You missed my so my great intro. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, man. One of these days, I mean, we've only been doing this for over a year now. I One know. of these days, we'll, uh, we'll really have this down. Yeah, I, th- I think the sweet spot's around five years. Five years, huh? Okay. Five, five years. Got that's, it. W- that's whenever you actually start to get your act together. Got it. Well, that's good to know. So we got four more to go. I, yeah. believe, I believe. I believe Elixir will be around in four years. I think so. I think so. And, well, maybe. And, it's not on my laptop right now. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I went to run Mix, and it's like, you don't have Mix. Mm. So then I check my ASDF, and it seems to be fine, except for none of the actual commands will run. That sounds not awesome. Sounds not awesome. Did you, did you reshim? Did you reshim your path? Yeah, I'm going to have to look into mm-hmm. that. That just happened yeah. right as we were supposed to get on. And then also I have a server that's running that suddenly started getting decipher errors. I was like, um, okay, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> that sounds awesome. So, yeah, we had redeployed an updated version of the app. And it did that. And then we, oh, like the, in production. I, I legitimately yeah. thought you meant you had a server like in your house. No, like in Which production. seems like a thing that you would have. I do. Well, yeah, kind of. You have a box in your I house. A, I have a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. <laughs> serving some stuff. But sure. then, uh, Fair enough. I, we rolled back and it's still doing it. So, And I have a mixed task that will update my keys. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure that that was working correctly. But then I ran into the mix <laughs> says it's not installed it's not like, there anymore i was like what just happened i was doing this last night no problem that's awesome so whatever <laughs> it's just been a, it's been a long day already yeah, yeah. it's not it's even 10 er- o'clock too early in the morning for all of this <laughs> that's that's pretty rad oh and then also heroku build they have a build thing that's supposed to be able to pull down erlang and elixir in the right version mm-hmm. and it won't pull down anything past 21.0 on OTP. Oh. So that was awesome. That was another thing I ran into this morning. Huh. That went, That's weird. Yep. Mm. So I just got more and more frustrated as the morning went on. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. It's okay. It's okay. We'll, we'll get there. Uh, did you see the... Um, well, before we talk about that, I, I got to send you a picture real quick. I'm going to send it to you in our super secret, not Slack... Not Slack, the not Slack. I'm going to send it to you in the not Slack. It's, I'm really excited about it, though. Hang on. Sounds good. Hang on. Check it out. I'm here. I bought so many books. Oh, my gosh. You talked about these last time. Oh, the little typer I have. I'll put the picture in the... I might make this picture the show art. <laughs> See, we got... I bought so many books. <laughs> Algorithm design manual. Introduction to algorithms I have on my... CLRS. Kindle. That's just yeah. CLRS. Yeah. Which I, I mean, clear screen, isn't that what? <laughs> yeah, clear uh, uh, carriage return line feed is what you're looking for there. Oh, okay, there. <laughs> yeah, probability and computing. That's something with horses, right? If I remember correctly, CLRS. Yeah, carriage return line feed. It's like a horse <laughs> thing. It's a race. Yeah. Oh right, yeah. It's the um, the Louisiana Derby. <laughs> and then a programmer's introduction to mathematics. Yep. I basically bought all these algorithms books because I have no formal education in all this. And so I've just learned these things through osmosis. So I'm not actually like I bought CLRS mostly out of solidarity because it's just like the algorithms book that everybody references. And it is like 
it's got a lot of stuff in there to be clear like a lot a lot of stuff in there it's a thick book it's a big it's a big boy it's a big old book but the others i'm actually planning on reading i'm not planning on or like clrs is like a good like reference book from what i can tell you're not gonna read it it's a but big. It's, it's a it's big book. Full of big O and big Omega. It's it's a big book. <laughs> it's a real. It's a real big book. But I, I have dived into uh, probability and computing, and that book is hot. That book is good. I really enjoy this so far. So yeah. So I'm gonna actually officially finally learn more algorithms stuff. Nice. Yeah. I have these big gaps in my knowledge. Plus, there's stuff that I actually I like have heard about and understand a little bit about, but I've never actually done. Like dynamic programming. Like I understand the fundamentals of that, but I've never like done it. Yeah. So I'm going to go back and actually try to work through some of that. That'd be very cool. Yeah. Trying to shore up my knowledge one day at a time. Isn't that what we're all doing? But there's so much out there. We'll never know it all. So. Yeah. That's the thing. Like I don't, I'm going back to, it's like, it, it, it does feel like going back to like an earlier time in your life. Mm-hmm. And actually funnily enough, I'm doing all these things in like Ruby and C uh, Ooh, because that? mostly because not all of them, all of them, but I'm doing a lot of it in, in those languages because so many of these algorithms and data structures are based around these ideas of a certain way to like mutate and lay out data in memory. And they mm-hmm. like take advantage of operating system things. They take advantage of like cache lines. Like, like these are things that are like that they're optimizing for. And right. so it's easier for me because I'm familiar enough with those languages and I understand how they work enough that I can get around in there. And it just, I don't know. It's like, I'm cursed. Like C was the first language I ever learned. And it's the language that I spent the most time in for the majority of my programming. It's like the language I imprinted on, right? Like it's like the first language I learned and it was the first language that I worked in professionally. And I did it for a long enough time that it still is kind of the way I think about memory management Mm -hmm. and even when i'm doing rust which is sort of inarguably like the right language to use if you're going to try to put something into production that needs to manage memory caveat being you probably don't need to manage memory (laughs) like i don't understand enough intuitively about how rust is laying out my memory it's not immediate for me. Like I have to like really stop and think about like, all right, is this thing because I'm declaring it here? Does it go in the heap? No, this is like still in the stack. And like, like, you know what I mean? Like you can do all that. You can do all the C stuff, but like for me, it's not as intuitive yet. Like I don't have it all memorized essentially. Whereas like with the C stuff, it's like, I just know how all that works. And so it's much more immediate for me to be able to get in there and do that. Plus you don't have to jump through the hoops of like unsafe and all this kind of stuff to do the things that I want to be able to do. So yeah, for whatever reason, that's just that's where I'm that's where I'm going with it right now. That's cool. Yeah, I remember being in school and going through all of that, and a lot of the algorithms definitely rely on mutability and data mm-hmm. layout. So mm-hmm. when you hop into a functional language, it's a completely different beast. Yeah, well, and, especially if a functional language with immutable data, right? Like good immutable right. data structures. All of a sudden, I mean, and that's the thing, like, and that, that's like my big complaint about Rust, like for work that I do on a daily basis, man, I did see for a long time, like, I don't want to manage memory. And I don't think anybody really wants to manage memory who has had to do it professionally for a long time, like, unless your problem really needs it. And the thing is, like, most problems, most problems just don't really need it. And like, you're way better off using an immutable data structure, because the operations are... You can understand the operations. You can understand what they're doing. And in a lot of cases, it's more efficient. 
I've seen a lot of like C code that does many, many, many deep copies of things. Meaning right. like, I'm going to copy this, but I'm not just going to copy the pointers at the top level. Like I'm going to recursively descend through this struct and copy all of the pointers on all the stuff. So I get like an entirely new thing. And that there's, and so there's no way of me like accidentally mutating something else from afar. Like that's a thing that happens a lot and that's expensive. Like if you do that often enough, that's expensive and it's definitely expensive compared to just using an immutable data structure where you have this sort of systemic generality and you can kind of say things like, ah, just update this. And you don't have to worry at all about it updating something else far away. So you eliminate that like class of race conditions. Right. And you also, well, some sort of like you, you start to help eliminate a class of race conditions. So it's easier for you to, to use a term that I hate. It's easier for you to sort of reason about like how it's all working which is really just translates to like, you don't have to worry as much mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. It's more efficient. Like if you have really, really wide data structures, like it's more efficient to copy only the bits that you need to and add new things and just keep references to all the different parts of the tree. Right. But you could do that in C. Yeah. You could build immutable data structures in C for sure. It just depends on like, it, I mean, yes, yes, you could, you could, it's or not just, as just it, mutate the in, part that you need instead of, right. It's not as, um, thing. I mean, this is, it's a little bit of the problem of JavaScript. There are, there's a good immutable data structures library out there for JavaScript, but because it's non-idiomatic and everybody kind of has to learn how to like use it, it's less convenient and doesn't play as well in the language. Like you kind of have to like go out of your way to do that. It's one of the major benefits of using a language where immutability is built into it because everything can assume it's immutable and you can start to get all these optimizations in the runtime because of that. Like garbage collection becomes way easier. You get all these benefits because you constrain the problem space right. by making stuff immutable. It's actually like a good design decision for a certain class of runtimes, right? Like for a certain type of runtime, it actually allows you to do like really smart optimizations when you have constraints. Right. If you know everything is immutable, then there's a lot of stuff that you don't have to handle or check where yeah. if... So like, like I've seen also, you said JavaScript, but Ruby also, there's a lot of people doing functional style stuff in Ruby. And I've seen a lot of attempts to try to make those data structures immutable and with varying degrees of success. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's <laughs> and then hard. The, the underlying system doesn't really know that they're immutable. So it can't do anything to take advantage of that and say, mm -hmm. oh, I don't need to do this type of garbage collection or I don't need to even move anything over because as soon as this function's done, all that data doesn't matter anymore, right? So yeah. I don't need to save this anywhere. So it's going to save it by default. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so that's been something fun that I've been doing. I'm trying to get better at all that and just put that stuff into my memory so that I can forge more connections between these ideas. So it's something that I've been working on or trying to plan out is like, if you have these sort of like long running ideas or like long running things that you want to get better at, uh, specifically around like self-study, right? Like if you're not in college or university or school or whatever, if like you don't have some motivating person basically saying like, these are the things you have to learn and you're just doing this stuff from self-study, how do you sort of force yourself into, uh, well not force yourself to do it. Like, cause I just enjoy doing this cause I'm, I guess maybe weird or a hyper nerd or something. <laughs> but my problem is I have, a ton of this kind of stuff that I want to get better at that I don't quite know enough about. And 
choosing what to work on becomes a real problem and also keeping track of all those disparate things so that I can kind of plan out like by the end of this year, I want to have shored up these five topics or these two topics or whatever, like keeping track of that progress is pretty hard. I don't have a good methodology for that right now. So I'm trying to like figure out how to do that. I wish I could help you. I I think I run into the same thing. There's so many things that I want to learn that I would say that I do a, I don't know, maybe not quite shallow, but not a deep dive into anything. And then I'll move on to this other thing and say, I'm going to go back to that later. And Mm -hmm. then I just, I either never do, or it's, you know, two years later or, or whatever. I don't know. I think that my work that I have to do drives a lot of, Mm-hmm. the learning that I end up actually deep diving into and, and the interest stuff gets put on the back burner. The stuff that's just purely for me. Right. Um, which is sad. Yeah. Carving out that time is hard, especially as a consultant. Cause you're like, ah, this is like, this could be billable hours. <laughs> I think that one thing that, you know, works is just making sure that you have a prioritized list mm-hmm. of the stuff that you want to learn and then setting that time aside mm-hmm. And just like in getting things done, you just have the stuff that you want at the top and yeah. And you evaluate it. You periodically evaluate how you're doing and you review it. You're like, am I actually making progress towards this? Why? Why not? Is it because I don't have the tools that I need or I don't have the right, I haven't thought about like how to get started on this enough or is it because I don't actually want to do this and And, it's not important. And then throw it away and go to the next thing in your list. Archive it, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just use text files. For everything so i just keep track of everything in text files and that works pretty well but yeah it's hard it's not as immediate because you have to kind of remember to like go periodically check up on that stuff yeah i, I used to actually keep a notebook next mm-hmm. to me while i worked throughout the day and i would write down questions or answers and at the end of the day i would kind of review it and, and write a little entry i mean not much different than just having a diary or a journal of your life except for it was all about my programming and work. And that helped me when I was doing that all the time, it helped me decide what books and what things I wanted to go after Mm -hmm. and helped me find the tangential things to work that I wanted to learn. So it was close enough to work that I could, could easily still stay motivated with it and not feel like I was falling behind on something that I need to learn for work, but it didn't have to be, like directly the work problem right now, it might be over the last week I've had this same area of question over and over. So let's read a book this weekend on it or blog posts or whatever. And that was super helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I need to find something, maybe a notebook, maybe a notebook would work. I do have a notebook that I keep stuff in, but it's like literally just random thoughts or if I'm planning out a project or trying to think through like a design or something, I'll write them all down and draw a lot of diagrams. Yeah, but otherwise I don't really keep like solid notes. That just doesn't work for me as well. So figure something out. I think it's person to person, but yeah, and even day to day, right? Yeah, what mood am I in right now? Right, is that going to be the thing that works for me? Or listening yeah. or reading? What's going to help me at this moment? Exactly. So speaking of helping me at this moment, I've been working a lot lately with external services mm-hmm. and camera that I can't control. What when I'm talking to it, what protocols I'm using or, or anything like that. So I've been working with uh, Tesla and really liked it for grabbing an image from the camera. That was awesome. Then I had to stream from the camera mm. and mm-hmm. I 
currently hate my life. <laughs> um, so the the big problem is, you know, Tesla gives you a lot of adapters that you can put in. Yep. So I, I was using Hackney, and then they have some middleware for different types of auth. And unfortunately, I don't control this camera, so I have to use Digest Auth. But the auth is not set up for you turning on async and Hackney. Oh, those don't play well together? They do not play well together. Got it. And then, so you almost need to have like a couple requests that are non-async and then move to the async one once you're you're authorized. It has me thinking, like, if I'm not doing a lot of services, should I just be going down to the Hackney level? Now, at the same time, that makes me re-implement Digest Auth, and I didn't get real excited about that. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited about tearing apart the MJPEG and getting the images off of it and streaming. Right. That part seems interesting. Yeah. Re-implementing Digestsoft does not seem exciting seem fun. to me. Yeah. I don't know. I am definitely the kind of person who, when stuff starts getting in, in my way, like I start immediately stripping off layers of these things. Yeah. Like I immediately start pulling apart, like, all right, we don't need this library. We need this wrapper around this thing. Like if this is getting in my way, like I'm getting rid of it. I'm dropping down to the lower level thing that all said i don't know yeah like we we i like using tesla i think tesla is a good pattern for building clients because it'll like i think the middleware thing is interesting it allows you to sort of capture these these discrete ideas for what you're doing like i don't know like if you're only talking to this one thing like yeah i might drop down to just use hackney and then you don't necessarily have to re-implement digest auth as much as you have to copy and paste it out of tesla right yeah, probably. Probably can just pull a lot of that out. Now I have to follow it all through Tesla to see how it gets down to Hackney at that point. Sure. But yeah, I could probably pull that out. And I think that's okay for you know this one streaming service, but there are other things that the camera offers and admin capabilities that I might want to add later. But, but probably to get this out feature out the door, I really sh- I'm probably just going to be copying all this stuff out and and working on it. I'd rather do that than read the digest RFC. <laughs> yeah, I mean that sounds awful. Well, and then and then that's assuming that the camera implements digest off by the RFC because I've run into those issues before too. Where like somewhere in the RFC it says, "Oh, you can do this instead and make one request instead of two, but it doesn't really support that. And then you implemented it, and you're just angry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Clients are a tricky thing. I haven't really found a pattern I love and and then like also making sure it's all configured correctly is really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. We're working through this right now with a service I'm working on where we're we're talking to a lot of other things and yeah, like making sure that all those clients behave correctly, do what we want to do and then provide like a unified set of like errors and stuff like that. So we can actually start to like intermingle all these things. I don't know. Like it's just, it's a giant chore. It's really, really a chore. And so I haven't found like a good strategy for dealing with that yet. I'm trying to think of a good strategy. I don't, yeah, I don't have one. Like, I mean, I think like you need a client inside, like that wraps the clients that like, I don't know. It's like, it's not awesome. Yeah. Once you have to carry some state around, that's when the the clients Mm -hmm. get, Harry. Well, with web clients anyway. That's where I where I end up running into the frustration for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tricky when you start talking to all these other services and each endpoint can potentially need or require different things and each one can degrade in different ways. Mhm. Like a lot of time like that becomes really tricky too 
because I don't know, this is something that I run up against a lot. Like people treat services like they're this singular black box with three key metrics, right? Like people act like a service has availability. Oh, it's a hundred percent uptime. (laughs) Well, even then when it's like where availability is uh, good requests to total requests, right? Like that's my availability. What's the ratio of good requests to total requests, right? And then you just act like the service has a latency that it needs to hit and also an availability it needs to hit. Mm-hmm. And that's like kind of not how it works in real life. Like in real life, you kind of, I think anyway, I mean, I guess the people would take issue with this, but in real life and then what I'm doing, each of those endpoints has their own availability because those endpoints function as different operations, right? They might be creating this one over here might be creating some widget and this one over here might be creating some other widget or like showing some stuff. And like those things are different. Maybe some of those things are more important than others. Maybe one of those things can never go down and the rest of them doesn't matter. This is something we've talked about before, but in the same way, like each of those operations can degrade in different ways. And so you, you don't want like some blanket control over, well, I mean, you might want some blanket control over like a circuit breaker. If every call to some downstream thing doesn't work, you probably do want to break a circuit, but what you do when that circuit is broken, whether you fall back to a cache or you return an error or whatever, or you go hit some other service, or you do some other remediation to try to provide like a good response back to the client, is really going to be like on a case by case basis. And so I think people try to shove all this stuff down into the client itself, and it doesn't make any sense to be there because there isn't a general purpose like we always want to do this. Not really. I mean, maybe if you're working on a small enough service, there is. But for a lot of the services that we work on, they're, they're like more medium sized. And yeah, each endpoint or each operation is going to have a different way to degrade. Yeah, I'm, I'm running into that with the camera. It's, I mean, I can give you the, I can either get the image or the stream, right? I only need like six or 10 frames per second. So originally I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just do the image request. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't get like three frames a second with the image oh, wow. request because the overhead of, of digest auth and maybe just the overhead of the re- HTTP request and the well, and presumably probably- that presumably like whatever computers on board that camera is not exactly the most awesome, right? Oh, and it's probably very focused on the Taking camera images. portion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's probably an optimized system. Well, I, I could be Linux on a chip, but maybe not. Either way, it's it's not set up to be able to do what you want to do without dropping down to some sort of streaming thing. Right. It's going to be the, the cheapest chip that they could put into that thing, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So just those two different types of services have, have different levels of agreements, different downtime yep. issues. I haven't actually had any requests dropped yet. They just get really slow. <laughs> right, right, right. You start to like bind that thing up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't take much. If I had a beefy server, yeah, I would probably be able to keep up with it. But sure. But that's just not the world I'm living in. So if I have a, another request out to the cloud to send these images up to, I might be able to send them one at a time and be fast enough because that, that remote server, so that, that service that's taking the data has, again, different requirements. Mm-hmm. So then how do you, you have an external service and, mm-hmm. and it has certain requirements. You know, we talk about using OTP, let it fail. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I, the things that I've seen and, and I saw that you were involved in, in discussion about it is that there's this idea that let it fail is, is about like 
any failure. Just let it restart. Move mm-hmm. on. But it, that really sh- needs to be handled. That's for unexpected failures. Right? Wouldn't you say? Right. So, right. So the idea is, so with let it crash or like let it fail or whatever we're calling it these days. Yeah. Jabberwocky. It's called Jabberwocky. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I believe that's called, that's the Vorpal Sword. <laughs> the Vorpal. You cut its head off. Vor- Vorpal. <laughs> the Vorpal Sword of Erlang, the fulcrum upon which we will <laughs> place the lever in order to move the world. Yeah, it is like supervision, right? Supervision is one of those things that allows us to build these really, really stable systems or really reliable systems. And as I've said before, like that reliability and the supervision stuff and the fault tolerance that you can get if you, I mean, with the caveat always being that like if you structure your application in such a way to really take advantage of those things, you can build a really fault tolerant system. And I contend that this is why people say that Erlang is so scalable. Because at the end of the day, like what matters is being able to handle failure and everything goes wrong when you get massive traffic spikes and whatever. And it's like, you need to be able to weather that storm. That's what matters. Well, and I think dealing with known failure, right? Actually handling it yourself instead of trying to let everything restart is a really good way to get there. Right. Well, so this is, this is the thing about like structuring it correctly, right? Like you, you have to think about this design because supervisors aren't going to like save you from poor design. They're a tool. They're a tool to help you build systems in a reliable way. And yeah, like you may not want to not handle failure. There are certain amounts of failures that you want to be in control of partially because they allow you to handle different scaling issues. They allow you to handle, they allow you to gracefully degrade better. You know, an example of this, like at one point I worked with somebody and we were implement, we, we brought circuit breakers into it and they were like, why do you need those? Because you have Erlang. Like this is just, in, you don't need these tools that you used in the old world, the old world before we had Erlang <laughs> and supervision. Like, why do you need circuit breakers? And it's like, well, because they're a tool and you can't, and I was like, okay, how would you how would you recommend doing this with supervisors only and they couldn't answer it they're like the, what they walked into was basically re-implementing circuit breakers so it's like yeah you have to structure these things correctly and and in a lot of cases yeah you do want to be able to handle known failures for instance like if i've got some connection let's say we're going to open a persistent streaming connection to some external service like in your camera example right well, the way that I would start to supervise that or the way that I would start to kind of like create that connection is I would treat it as a state machine. The connection comes up in a disconnected state because that's stable. That means that I can like boot the app without the camera connected to it or without access to a camera server. Because you imagine if, if your camera connection HTTP thing client required the camera to be there, meaning like it immediately tried to on the init it immediately tries to like connect to the camera. Mm -hmm. Well, now you've like tied your entire app booting process to that camera being there. Right. So that's not great. Not awesome. Not awesome. So a a network outage or a little bit of the power at the camera goes out as your app's booting and and your whole app is done. Right. And we see this too. Like you could imagine a database connection, right? Let's say you've got some web server thing. And you've got a database connection. Well, if your application requires a database connection to come up and to boot correctly, what happens when you get some major traffic spike and the database starts to lag and go down and can't handle it and starts rejecting like incoming connections for whatever reason? 
Well, now you can't boot new instances of your app because they come up and they immediately try to connect and they either make the problem worse by overloading the server more and then they can't boot and then you can't get into the load balancer and you can't serve good requests. Like where a good request might be like, ah, we can't go to the database right now, but we could read from a cache. Or at least you can go and be like, ah, the database is down right now. So 503 this thing immediately. And like, let's try to take the load off the database. Right. Right. So yeah. So you don't want to tie the boot process of your application to some external dependency somewhere. So you start all these connections in a disconnected state and then you have them essentially try to connect after that. Right. And that could do that mm-hmm. in like a handle continue. They could send themselves a message. They could have some other controlling process that tells them to do that, that monitors them and, and also lives maybe side by side to them as a sibling underneath the supervisor, like a watchdog process that could do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of ways to handle that. But at some point, they either get a message that they sent themselves or they have a handle continue or whatever. They attempt to connect. And if they can connect, then they move to a connected state and now they can start serving traffic. You can start like utilizing them in, inside of a pool. Well, and a lot of times at that point, once you have that, that startup and disconnected and move to the next state, if you get disconnected in the middle of running, a lot of times you could just go back to that original state exactly. without, without shutting down that gen server, without it crashing. Right. Um, and, right. and if it does, at least it's coming up in a disconnected. So also if you have lots of them, since they're all coming up in a disconnected state, you probably aren't going to have the thundering herd problem either. Mm-hmm. And you can have them all back off, obviously use jitter and all that kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, whenever you're doing back off, you should always use jitter. Yeah, and it's you a know, lot so- easier to do back off if your server doesn't crash. Right. Like, yeah. It, and when I say server there, I mean gen server, not... Well, and so, but like, that's a known failure, right? You, you know that if you've got some HTTP client, at some point that web server, that camera might get overloaded and it might go down. So like, that's a known thing. So you can say that if the stream gets disconnected, then I better go ahead and fall back to a disconnected state and do that. And so you might just handle that case. The benefit of the supervisor is for every other error that you can't think of, that also could happen. Mm-hmm. For instance... You crash because your mailbox gets overloaded and you can't keep up with something, right? For whatever reason. Or like you crash because the connection process crashes because in the middle of trying to pull some new part of the stream, we get some garbage data for whatever reason and we can't parse it. And so we crash because of that or whatever. Like there's a whole host of other things that could happen inside of your camera connection process that could go wrong. And that's what the supervisor is really there to solve. Like they're there to handle that. So when that thing crashes, well, now you come back up and you're in a stable state. You're in a disconnected state again. And you'd attempt to connect. And if you can't, for whatever reason, you could start to send alarms. You could start to like let people know like, hey, I can't connect to the camera. This is bad. Please come intervene. Yeah, camera Um, camera might be unplugged or... Yeah, whatever. Whatever it is you're going to do. So you get to like send feedback back to the operators, the human beings who are the ones who really like keep the system up and running. But you can also start to do remediation at the system level because you could start to like have liveness and readiness checks of your service. Let's say like, again, if you're talking about a database call, if all of a sudden enough database connections go down and you can't process, you can't serve good requests anymore. Well, now you can actually start to let the system know, like, hey, I can't connect to the database. Don't send me more traffic and take take me out of the load balancer or send me a lot less load or whatever. Mm-hmm. You can start to do stuff like that. And you can because the thing is, is like the health of any one service isn't generally that interesting in a big enough system. Like maybe you have a single monolith 
and that and that's like it's more interesting to you but just generally you know most applications live and run in a system they live in a system of other things and from the user's perspective enough things have to go right in the overall system for them to get a good request and so you have to start kind of thinking about these things in terms of the way that the system starts to care about them and you have to care about the health of the overall things so you have to start to provide these like sort of indicators back to other parts of the system so that they can make intelligent decisions about what to do next. I mean, this goes back to sort of the, um, the observability stuff we were talking about last time. This is how you get some of that is by being able to like provide these like key indicators and these like more contextually interesting things back to operators and to the rest of the system. And there, and you can take that to the nth degree. Like you can start to like really, really go down that path. But yeah, but I think that's the trick to the supervisors, right? It would be bad if you bring, if your database connections required a database to be there. And luckily, like, I mean, I don't know about all the adapters, but definitely like the DB connection adapters and Ecto, like they don't rely on the database being there when you start up. Like they know how to gracefully connect and disconnect. But a lot of people end up building, well, I was going to say Redis connections, but I don't think Redix has this problem either because I think it uses connection under the hood. But I've definitely seen people build like connections to Rabbit or connections to Kafka or whatever that basically rely on those things being there and can't operate without them being there. Mm -hmm. And that's bad. If you can't boot your application without n number of dependencies available to you, that's bad. Like you don't want that because anytime you're going over a network, you have to assume that that stuff won't be there at some point. Even if you're not going over a network, if you're doing embedded hardware development, you you have to assume that sometimes your peripherals aren't going to be running. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any external dependency, you have to assume it's not going to be there at some point. And if your boot process is tied to that thing being there, well, that indicates that your application requires it to be there. And now you have a very brittle application, mm-hmm. a very, very brittle application. So if you have those things in your app, you really, really want to work to fix them. Like you should be able to boot your application with none of the other things that it requires started and have it at least boot. Now I could throw warnings and errors and all that kind of stuff when it does that. And it probably should, but it should Mm -hmm. boot and it should probably serve requests. Like it should be able to at least, you know, you should be able to hit like whatever your load balancer readiness check, liveness check thing is endpoint to be able to know like, what's the health of this thing right now? Is it good? Is it bad? And it should be bad because it doesn't have its dependencies. And then you should be able to start all the other dependencies up and it should start working. Like if you can do that, if you can run that test on your application and it works, you're in pretty good shape. If that doesn't work, you really, really want to look at why. Because, yeah, it indicates that you're going to have a very fragile system. And then it would be really nice if you had a dashboard of all of your subsystems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Which shouldn't have to use a database. (laughs) Right. I mean, all the, well, I mean, at the very least, like if you can't talk to the database, you need to return 503s or something like, you know, fall back to a cache or whatever. And like, Mm -hmm. and maybe that means that certain things do have to be there when you boot. For instance, like, let's say that we have an application that has, that does this, right? We have a cache of things. And as part of the boot process of the application, we have to read in the file that contains the cache of things. And we parse it and write, read it into a nets table. And that happens on boot and it blocks the boot process until it is done. And the reason is because that thing is required in order to run the application. 
Like to run the application correctly, we have to have that thing. There's not a degraded state if yeah. that's not there. Yeah. And so we don't let the thing boot. Now it's out of band and like the file should always be there for a lot of reasons. Like, but if it, if it's not, we want to halt the boot process. And we say like, we can't boot because this is not here. You yeah, have to have this thing here. I mean, it's like a runtime config file. If mm-hmm. that file doesn't exist, there shouldn't be runtime. Right. And there are certain things that definitely fall into that category. Like you probably don't, you are, you probably want to halt the boot process if you can't get the URL for your database. Like if you don't know where to go to connect to the database, you want to halt the boot process because like probably, probably, right? Like this is, I mean, maybe not, but like there are certain, there's a category of things that have to be there to start your application correctly. Right. You, it's up to you to figure out what those things are. Uh, and I think you should take a step back and really look at those whenever you say that this must be there for this application to even start. Question it. Say, well, what if it's not? What could we do? Right. And, you know, it it might be we pull in the static configuration, but if it's not there, there's a page that you can go to where you, if you're doing a web application, that you can configure it while it's running. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's the only endpoint that comes up is this configuration endpoint, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously it's going to very much be like it's very much going to be case by case dependent, and it's going to be dependent on you know your application and the guarantees of your application, and that's the stuff you really need to think about. It's like what guarantees is this application going to provide? What do I do when the database is down? Any of these external things that could be down, what do I do? How do I fall back to that? supervisors aren't necessarily where you're going to do that. They help stop cascading failure. And they also help stop this proliferation of error handling code. They help stop the like try catch exception around all the things that matter inside this function, because I have no idea what could go wrong kind of problems. Because most of the time when stuff goes wrong, it's bad state. Somehow you got into a bad state because programmer error most of the time and you can't really help that so just crash it and bring it back up and just accept the fact that humans make errors and move on with your life and that you can't handle every error it's a waste of time to try to catch every single exception that is possible and so you end up allowing the supervisor to do a lot of that for you but those are exceptional things a database right. going down is not an exceptional thing. At least it's not in my world. Like the external dependencies not being available is not exceptional. That is just a thing that happens. Right. And then if you have a gen server that's coming up and immediately trying to connect to the external thing and crashing again, then you end up with your supervisor dying. And really that restarting process isn't free. It's not like you aren't spending cycles of your of your system trying to watch that. And so that constant restart, even if you crank up the number of failures per second to where it's never going to actually go down Mm because your computer can't run that many gen server restarts in the amount of time, it's going to degrade your entire system. So even the things that should be up and running aren't going to get the time that they deserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, so I think... You really have to start to think about how those things are going to fail and where your supervisors are going to be the most useful and and what errors are meaningful to catch and what errors are meaningful to handle and what you want to do when you do see those errors. Supervisors don't back off. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't, I mean, there are supervisors out there that will do back off, 
Mm-hmm. But like by default, the built-in supervisors are not doing back off for you. Right. You probably want to back off of a downstream service when things start to go wrong. So how are you going to do that? Right. And I think that's dependent. One of the things that I do is have one process that is watching some other processes and keeps track of back off for each of those individually. Mm-hmm. And it tells them when to restart instead using like a dynamic supervisor or something. Treat them as, as transient. Like when they die, just let them go and let the watcher process decide when to restart them and how. Yeah, yeah I think that's a that's a reasonable pattern. There's a, there's a lot of reasonable patterns for how to do that that sort of like connect downstream connection type stuff. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of those. You mentioned doing like a state machine on startup. Are you building your own state machine using Gen State M? Like how how would is your suggestion or I'm sure that there's a yeah. dependent there, but we do both. We use Gen State M a fair bit. It is convenient. It's very, very convenient. It has a lot of I mean, it's like a super powered gen server. It has a whole ton of functionality built into it. It's worth looking at. It's it's very, very interesting as far as useful libraries go. I have fallen in and out of love with it multiple times. I'm in like a real cyclical sort of a relationship with Gen Statum. Mm-hmm. Mostly around the timeout stuff. The timeouts, so it has timeouts built into it. They are convenient because they allow you to kind of encapsulate a lot of fairly complex logic inside of like the timeouts. Like you can say, like, if I move to a new state, cancel all these timeouts. If I get a new event, cancel this timeout or whatever. Like it allows you to do interesting things with the timeouts, which are which are useful. Mm-hmm. The problem I have with it is that um, it makes it really hard to do property based testing with, which is not necessarily like a huge deal breaker, but it, it is very annoying. And the reason is because most of the time when you're doing property based testing with time, you want to control the time. Right. As part of your generation steps, like you want to be able to control when timers are fired, like deterministically from your test itself. And if your timers are all built into this thing, that means you can't control time. And it's not even as simple as like sending it a message because it gets handled totally differently. And it does a lot of, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, select, like selective receive. So it can like prioritize like what message it can prioritize what messages get processed in what order. So I can say basically like this is higher priority. So if I have this type of message in my mailbox, process that before I process all the others. And like timeouts like take precedence over other things. So like they kind of like you can't just like send it a message because it won't behave the same way as like the actual internal timer code. Right. Which makes it harder to do like that kind of deterministic property-based testing, which I kind of feel like is a drag. So there are certain things where I do want to be able to control time, in which case like using those timeouts like kind of sucks for that because you can't you just can't do it. But that's a small that's a smaller thing. The other main problem with it isn't really a problem as much as it's just like that API is massive. Like it's just, it's like a, it does like so many things, and learning the API is kind of a chore. For Gen Statum. Yeah. It's like kind of a chore. Yeah. I can't, there's a, a lot of... It's like the quite Scala a few functions of, already. of Erlang. 
It's like every language idea ever went into this thing, right? Like that's that's the Scala methodology. Like any good idea that's ever put happened them. in a language, we should put it in this language. And then see what happens. And yeah, and just go for it. Yeah, Jin Statum has like a ton of like really good ideas, none of which have like a very clear directed design principle. It's just like all these good <laughs> ideas, like all slam together. And a lot of them are good ideas and a lot of them are really useful. And some of them kind of like, this kind of is annoying. And most of them, I'm just like, I don't remember how this works. Like, I don't remember how it all plays together with all the rest of the stuff. So I have to look it up every time. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the callbacks in there, just the the types, some of the type signatures, like the return values, there's like, it could be one of these 15 things. Yeah. And so just looking at the functions themselves, it's like, oh, it's not that big. Oh, wait. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's huge. Yeah. It's a whole it's a whole thing for sure. For sure. But it is not I mean there there's I like a lot of those API decisions. I um but yeah, it it it's you know, you take the good with the bad. But I actually think like for a lot of the state machine stuff, you're just fine using a gen server and some timer and like a timer module that you control and some atoms. Like you you'll be fine doing that. It's not as nice of an API, you know, or rather it's like not as convenient of an API, mm-hmm. but you can, you can recreate that same thing and have a lot and have more, have control more control over it. Right. Yeah. Right. Have more control yeah. over it. I mean, I think like those kinds of state machines, when you're talking about connections and stuff like that, they're very much like dependent on like the state is important mm-hmm. and you're typically governing some very stateful external thing too from a design perspective, you can just do it all in the gin server. And like, that becomes the thing and you don't need like this external data only state machine for this kind of stuff because you're not really, that's not really what you're talking about. Like what you're really talking about is, am I in a connected or a disconnected state? How many errors have I seen? It's like the state that you're managing there is like very lightweight. So you don't need to feel compelled to like extract all this logic to some stateless data structure thing that we reduce over and you know, whatever it's like, you don't really need all that. Right. I feel filled up right now. You seem you seem tired. I'm just just frustrated with my <laughs> <laughs> this morning, and I was up all night last night. My daughter was sick. Uh, oh, that she's kind of been sick. That sucks. Uh, a couple days ago, she was sick all night that night too, and we had tornadoes around right. here. Really, really big ones. Like those so, were some big tornadoes. Yeah, and like it jumped over my house. It was what southwest of me and then started up again northeast of me and you know there's a there's a lot of people who lost everything so yeah if anybody a, if anybody big, it was a big that one was rough yeah if anybody out there wants to i'm i'm sure that the uh american red cross that's helping out around here could probably use some some either some blood or some money to to get things going and help these people out so mm-hmm. if if you feel like donating that'd be awesome even though this won't come out till next Thursday, I'm, they'll still be cleaning up. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that these kinds of things happen, and then it's. You I mean talking about years? Yeah, of recovery. Yeah, it's it's bad. I mean, so when the tornado was still in Kansas, I'm on the Missouri side, north of me, and this was it was southwest of me, but north of me, pretty far actually, like 20 miles north of me, they had debris landing in fields and man. And so it was probably 30 or 40 miles away was the tornado from where that was throwing debris down. Oh, my word. 
I remember I was close, I was close to Joplin when the when the Joplin tornado hit, like how many oh, years man. ago that was now? I mean I yeah. guess it was close to like ten years ago now or more. Yeah, it's been a while. But yeah, I was close to that and, and we drove through Joplin all the time going to Kansas and yeah, I mean it took it was years, years and years of just like just we're trying to rebuild. So, so you, any you help, sent, any help, uh, yeah, you want to, you, you want to send out is good. You sent me a photo. So I sent you a photo. Oh my word. That's, that's the, terrifying. That's the tornado. It is that's awful. I think they said it was a mile wide. <sighs> my word. <laughs> that is a scary looking picture. Yeah. That's terrifying. Good night. So yeah, we spent the night in the basement. It was a lot of fun. Ugh. I'm sorry. I'm glad you're okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, everybody, everybody at my house is okay, but there are a lot of people needing help. So help out if yeah. you can. And it looks like the lineup for um, ElixirConf is out. For ElixirConf is out. Gig City, I think, is completely it's, posted. Is it? And Strange Loop. Strange Loop. Strange Loop. Strange Loop program's out. Yeah, I saw the uh, email this morning. I will unfortunately not be able to go to Strange Loop this year, but Strange Loop is awesome. I don't know if I'll be able to make it. My fall is pretty packed yeah yeah same yeah so if you're going to be at ElixirConf, let us know and we're going to try to plan some events things like that for friends of the show yeah we'll have we'll some pretty interesting cool swag so uh yeah come find us and uh and we'll probably be one of those things we'll just try to do like word of mouth at the conference once we figure out what we're doing and if you've hung around with us this long i'm currently looking for client so i'm just gonna throw that out there (laughs) what's Uh, the point of having a podcast if you can't this is called building a brand amos that's that's right (laughs) all right i'm gonna teach you a thing or two about marketing one of these days (laughs) all right i'm pretty good at this marketing thing all right you market for me your first step is you need more pimento cheese based marketing techniques you're gonna need to lean in heavily on the pimento cheese based marketing techniques because it's all over the community right now the entire is, community is, is enamored with pimento cheese. Well, I mean, you've had pimento cheese sandwich, right? So, oh yeah, you, of course. You already know why it would be everywhere. Oh, I mean, obviously, hundred percent. But I mean, I'm just, I'm just surprised that uh, it, it's like the the taste sensation that's sweeping the elixir nation. Mm. We actually that we should bring pimento cheese sandwiches. Mm. To, oh, don't to don't give it away. Don't go. Okay. These are good. These, right. these are good ideas. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just surprised that like it just sort of on its own, like people just love pimento cheese all of a sudden just sprung up out of nowhere. I have no idea, yeah. but it's, it's like the most important thing that we're going through right now. I know, right? It's the, it's literally the thing. It's uh the, the, the most talked about interesting thing in the elixir community at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Now I'm just hungry. It's time for lunch. <laughs> all right. Let's get out of here. <laughs> all right. Take it easy, Chris. Talk to you later.